Hello and welcome back to the Motocross Vault. My name is Tony Blazer, and what this video is going to cover is one of the most interesting and iconic machines of the late 80s, Suzuki's RMX 250. All new for 1989, the RMX was Suzuki's return to the off-road arena. They had had a very successful line of machines called the PEs, the Pure Enduros, in the late 70s and early 80s, but in 1984, they had discontinued the PE and really taken a hiatus of about five years there. Now, the Japanese always had kind of a weird relationship with Enduro racing. While they had continually built motocross machines, none of them had really had the same level of commitment to the Enduro market. While the Europeans, like Husqvarna, KTM, and stuff, had always focused on this as one of the core you know, tenets of their marketing, the Japanese had kind of dabbled in and out. A Honda had a, a machine called the MR250 and the MR175 in the mid-70s. It was essentially like a uh, Enduro-wise version of a CR. I don't know whether it didn't sell or what happened, but they only had it for a couple years. The 250, maybe a one year, I think, if I remember right. And the 175, maybe two, uh, maybe three. Anyway, it was a very short run. And then you had Yamaha come on with the ITs in 76, I think. The PEs are around the same time. And then... Uh, Kawasaki started with the KDX series and I think 79 if I remember off the top of my head. So they all had their dabbles with them, uh, but none of them were consistently producing them. Really, the, the one that probably was produced the longest was the KDX 200, which was continually from, I don't know, 79, like I said, until I think 2004 was the last year for it. So they kept that one going, but really that's it. I mean, um, Honda had their XR line. They had come out with the four strokes around 79, if I remember right off the top of my head, and they had kept those going for quite a long time. But the two strokes they had abandoned after the MR, they never were... Uh, in that market. And the XRs, while they were super fun, I love XRs, other than maybe the 600, the 250s and others weren't really serious machines. They weren't like, you wouldn't say for top level enduro competition. Maybe you could ride your XR 250 in a local enduro or something in the C-Class and be fine. But if you're going to race with like the Roddy Smiths and the Dick Burlesons of the world, you weren't going to get on an XR and do it. So Suzuki had really kind of abandoned that market. I think they'd had a team in the, it's kind of before my time, but I believe from doing a little research, they'd had a team on the PEs for a while, but they had gotten out of that and uh, in the mid-80s, they were focusing just on the RMs. Now, in the late, mid to late 80s there, they kind of had a change of heart, and they decided they were going to get reinvolved in this market and go back to the, um, maybe a more serious machine, and this RMX was that bike. And uh, within a couple of years, they, they had a full factory team riding them, and they were really a really great machine and, and kind of one of the top machines in off-road racing for four or five years. In the mid-90s, they uh, basically, like so many other machines, the RMX started to get, you know, neglected. Uh, by 96, they had an all-new arm design. I had an arm that year. loved that bike. And by then, I think the off-road team had transitioned to racing the RMs. Because the RMX, the 89 RMX, more or less stays to be the basis of that machine until it's retired. I think 98 was the last year for the RMX. I'm going to do a video chronicling the whole history of the machine, but this one's covering just the first one, the 1989. So it really didn't get a lot of updates over those years. Minor motored mods, and they did switch to the conventional forks and some other things. But for the most part, the bike was becoming outdated. It wasn't up to date with the latest machines. And by the time they brought guys like Rodney Smith on to race the off-road series, they were pretty much racing just converted RMs. They were no longer using the RMX as the basis because it got kind of old. But in 89, this was a really groundbreaking machine in a lot of ways. It was a really important machine for Japanese involvement in enduro racing. It was really the most legitimate Japanese enduro racer at the time, in spite of some compromises that were made on it to in order to pass things like the EPA emissions. I'll get into that a little bit in the video, but um, there were a lot of compromises made. Suzuki's dealers wanted a machine that they could sell that was EPA legal that could be ridden in a national park or someplace, and in order to do that, they had to make a lot of compromises to the stock bike, but the DNA was there to make it into a, a real racer, and with a little bit of mods, it was great. It won several, several national enduro titles. Um, it was a great machine for several years before it kind of got 
that outdated. So this is going to be the story of the RMX from its inception, uh, kind of a little bit of behind the scenes of what went into developing it and then what that machine was like. So I hope you like it. If you like this sort of thing, check out some of the others I've done. I've done histories of other iconic enduro machines like the XR250. Uh, I did a, actually did a video on the MR, uh, the 76 MR250, if you're looking for some really classic enduro stuff. And uh, I'm going to do some more stuff in the future. Seems like people like it. So here's the story of the 1989 uh, Suzuki RMX250. As I said in the intro, the Japanese have always had an interesting relationship with the off-road racing market. While motocross machines have continued to be mainstays of the Japanese performance lineups, enduro machines like the IT, MR, PE, and KDX have come and gone over time. While the Europeans have steadfastly stuck to the hardcore off-road market, the Japanese have shown far less dedication to this passionate segment of the motorcycling community. At the start of the 1980s, all the big four Japanese manufacturers had 250cc machines aimed at the enduro market. The IT, PE, KDX, and XRs offered civility, refinement, and typically a watered-down version of the technology found on their motocross cousins. Eventually, however, the Japanese seemed to lose interest in this market, and by 1985, only Honda's mild-mannered XR250 remained to do battle with the European thoroughbreds. While the XR was super fun, it was far too heavy and underpowered to compete without serious modifications. It was a great play bike, but not much of a true racer. In 1986, Suzuki began to once again get the itch to try and compete in the enduro market. Their PE line had been discontinued in 1984, and their DR line of four-strokes was even less serious than Honda's XRs. At the time, Suzuki was trying to revitalize their motocross program after several years of disappointing results. The production RMs were no longer the class leaders they had once been throughout the 70s and early 80s, and most people acknowledged that the yellow team was in need of new blood and new ideas. On the motocross side, Suzuki hired multi-time AMA champion Bob Hanna to help whip the arms back into competitive form. On the off-road side, Suzuki hired ISDE competitor Charles Halcombe away from Husqvarna to help them develop an all-new enduro machine. Initially, this new project was purely a skunkworks operation, with Halcombe compiling a list of wants for a competitive off-road racer. By this point, it had been many years since the Japanese had truly went all out in an effort to compete with the Europeans on their own turf. Husqvarna and KTM were no longer motocross powers in the U.S., but they remained the dominant forces in off-road racing. For Suzuki to go head-to-head -head with the Europeans, it would take a far more serious effort than they had shown in the past. On the Japanese side, most previous off-road machines had been poor cousins of their motocross brethren. Unlike the Europeans, who equipped their off-roaders with all the latest in motocross technology, most Japanese enduro bikes featured chassis and components that looked the part, but were inferior in quality and construction. Mild steel frames, low-tech suspension components, and low-power motors were more often than not the Japanese approach in the Enduro class. For his new top-secret racer, Halcombe's wish list included a bike with motocross-level performance and off-road versatility. For years, serious racers have been doing just that by converting their RMs, CRs, KXs, and YZs to off-road use by installing heavy flywheels, bolting on skid plates, swapping out the tanks, and slipping on spark-arrested silencers. This do-it-yourself approach was effective, but costly and time-consuming. For this new machine, Halcombe wanted that work to have already been done at the factory. He envisioned a machine based on a motocross model in the European mold, with all of the Enduro hardware already installed. That meant a versatile wide-ratio transmission, standard lighting, which was a requirement for Enduro racing at the time, off-road specific suspension settings, a large tank, and protection for all the bike's vulnerable bits. In 1987, Halcombe cobbled together just such a machine and let Dirt Rider magazine test it in their September 1987 issue. The bike was based off the much-improved 1987 RM250 and featured only a minimum amount of modifications to make it off-road ready. It was represented as a proof-of-concept idea for the brand, 
and was well received by the magazine editors, who were enthusiastic for the Japanese to get back in the off-road game. At this point, the plans for Halcom's brainchild were still very much up in the air, but the wheels at Suzuki were turning. Back in Japan, the engineers already had most of the development done on their radically redesigned RM250 slated for the 1989 season. The new machine ditched the dated look of the current RM in favor of sleek lines and cutting-edge performance. The redesigned bike was slated to introduce Suzuki's first inverted fork design and move to a 125-style case reed intake system. This new machine would also provide the underpinnings for Suzuki's most ambitious off-road project yet, the all-new RMX. While Halcom and his team were busy locking down their performance targets for the RMX, Suzuki's legal team and marketing divisions were busy dealing with Uncle Sam and the demands of their dealers. When they had surveyed their dealers, Suzuki found that their partners wanted any all-new off-road machine to be EPA legal. That meant the bike would be legal to ride in parks and on government land, like Honda's popular XR series. While this would make the machine an easier sell for dealers, it would pose challenges for Suzuki's engineers back in Japan. If the RMX was not going to be sold as a closed-course-only competition machine, then it was going to have to meet some very stringent sounding requirements set by the U.S. government. These requirements were likely going to do quite a bit to neuter the RMX's motocross-bred performance, unfortunately. Being based on the all-new 89 RM250, the RMX shared 90% of its DNA with the motocross model, but that additional 10% made a significant difference in its performance. Both machines shared an all-new chromoly steel frame and redesigned full-floater single-shock rear suspension system. On the RMX, there were crash bars added underneath the motor for additional protection, and Zerk fittings were added to the linkage to make servicing it easier. The RMX also shared the RM's new 41mm Kayaba inverted forks, but the Endura version employed a different piston and softer settings internally, as well as softer springs, to provide a more compliant ride off-road. Both machines featured all-new bodywork that was a huge improvement over previous Suzuki styling efforts. The front fender no longer looked like a duck-billed platypus, and the overall styling was sleek instead of agricultural. Both machines shared the same front fender, radiator shrouds, and side panels, but the RMX featured a larger gas tank, a taillight and headlight, an 18-inch rear wheel, which was less prone to getting flats than the new 19-inch wheel found on the RM, a set of quick-release axles, handguards, and an odometer. The chain was an O-ring design, which dragged the power down slightly but was far more durable, and the rear sprocket was changed from aluminum to steel, also for durability. On the motor side, the RMX featured a modified version of the all-new water-cooled Case Reed 249cc mill used on the RM250. Both motors offered five speeds and a manual clutch, but the RMX employed off-road specific ratios designed to increase its versatility. Both the cylinder and head were identical to the RMs, but the RMX featured a two-ring piston, which provided slightly more compression and a little higher durability, and a thicker head gasket. Unfortunately, most of the other motor differences were aimed more at appeasing the federal government than actually improving performance. In order to be EPA legal, the RMX would need to pass a very stringent 82 decibel sound limit. Of the RMX's competitors in 89, only the XR250 and all-new KDX200 were able to pass this bar for certification. None of the European Enduro machines were even close to this silent, and the new WR250 did not even try with its YZ spec silencer and running gear. All of those machines were sold as closed course only and were illegal for riding on most public land. By going for EPA certification, Suzuki opened up its riding options quite a bit, but it closed off a great deal of its performance envelope. In the end, the all-new RMX did meet its EPA target, which pleased its dealers and made the bike one of the most versatile off-road offerings available in 1989. If left stock, it was whisper quiet and legal to be ridden in places that would have gotten your bike impounded on a YZ. 
It was no more obnoxious than a Yamaha blaster and happy to be puttered around all day long like a proper trail machine should. If you were looking for RM level performance though, you were going to be badly disappointed. In order to meet their sound goals, the Japanese engineers had made several compromises that limited the RMX's performance. While both the RM and RMX shared the same 38mm slingshot carburetor, the X version featured a different top that prevented the slide from opening fully. There was also a limiter installed in the power valve mechanism, and an extremely restrictive lid was mounted to the top of the airbox. To further reduce sound, the exhaust pipe used a dual-walled construction, and a massive steel silencer featuring an internal spark arrestor and a choked-off outlet was installed. On the trail, all of these restrictions added up to a 250 with the power of a poor-running 125. On Kirker's dyno, the stock 89 RMX pumped out a very uninspiring 24.1 horsepower. This was three less horsepower than a stock CR125 made on the same equipment that year. The RMX's output could not even best the equally stealthy KDX200 with its 28.3 standard horsepower. In stock condition, the bike was very quiet, but incredibly choked off and underpowered. Low-end power was particularly anemic, and the bike demanded to be revved to make any sort of usable power. Steep hills, deep sand, and muddy going easily bogged down its modest output. With the restrictions in place, the only way to go fast on it was to ride it like a 125, pinning it to the throttle stops and using momentum to keep the fun going. If you made a mistake and let it fall off the pipe, you were going to need a great deal of clutch abuse and probably a shift or two to get the motor back up and going. Thankfully though, getting more power out of the RMX was a relatively simple process. Because the basic DNA was mostly RM, all you had to do was swap out some parts to bring the Zook's power band back to life. By removing the airbox cover, swapping the carb top, power valve covers, pipe, and silencer for RM units, the RMX was completely transformed. If you wanted even more performance, you could also replace the RMX's head gasket with a thinner one from the RM. With these simple mods in place, the RMX's output jumped a eye-opening 10 horsepower. This put it on par with most of the stock European enduro mounts of the time, but it still lagged well behind the 40 horsepower pumped out by the YZWR and A9. Even uncorked, it was no tractor, and the RMX made most of its usable power relatively high up in the power curve. With its heavy flywheel, the bike could be lugged without concern of stalling, but there was not a lot of grunt on hand to blast over a fallen tree or through a deep bog. Keep it singing and the RMX could keep up with anyone, but try and ride it like a big bore four-stroke and you were going to lose time before the next check. On the suspension end of things, the RMX was at the very cutting edge of design in 1989. Initially, Halcom and his team had wanted to stick with conventional forks for the new machine due to their superior compliance off-road. In the end, however, the engineering and marketing teams had thought the best thing to do was to go with Kiaba's all-new inverted design. At this point, the motocross world was just starting to move away from conventional forks, and the inverted alternatives were seen as very trick and somewhat exotic. The theory behind the switch at the time was that the inverted forks offered superior rigidity in high G-load situations and were less likely to get caught in ruts due to having less underhang below the axle. While the latter was certainly a bonus off-road, the increased rigidity was less valuable in a rocky creek bed than it was in a set of stadium whoops. Regardless of the new fork's actual or perceived benefits, the decision was made that the RMX would fare better in the marketplace if it had the latest hardware installed. The RMX's new 41mm inverted forks featured a full 12.2 inches of Ultra Plus travel. Both the spring rates and damping settings were lighter than what was found in the motocross version to make the fork more responsive to small rocks and roots off-road. Like the RM, the RMX's forks offered 20 compression adjustments and 20 rebound settings. Once on the trail, the forks provided a very compliant ride that gobbled up trail chatter very well. Large to medium hits were also no problem with the RMX, and the forks could handle anything you were likely to encounter in an enduro competition. For high-speed desert work or light motocross use, they were a bit soft, but even the occasional trip to the track was not out of the question as long as you kept your Guy Cooper antics to a minimum. 
For the RMX's intended use, these forks were excellent. Outback, the picture was even rosier, with the redesigned full floater offering the best rear suspension in 1989. The new Kiaba damper featured 12.7 inches of travel and offered 21 settings for compression and 18 settings for rebound. In stock condition, the shock's action was super smooth and compliant over rocks, roots, and other trail detritus. Like the forks, it was a bit soft for hardcore motocross use, but even the expert-level off-roaders praised it for its controlled action and plush feel. In the handling department, the RMX proved to be an excellent woods machine. With its comfortable ergonomics and supple suspension, the bike felt considerably lighter than its 243 pounds ready-to-ride weight would suggest. Sharing the RM chassis, the RMX was very nimble in the turns and offered a very quick steering feel. That made snaking through the trees a pleasure, and the bike was very, very maneuverable. With its added weight, it was not quite as nimble as the motocross version, but it was still the best turning machine in the 250 Enduro class. At speed, the relatively short wheelbase and aggressive motocross-style geometry made the RMX a slightly busy ride, but it was far less schizophrenic than the stock RM. The combination of the additional weight and different suspension tuning seemed to quiet down some of the motocrossers' high-speed wanderings. Neither Suzuki machine was as rock-solid at speed as the bullet-trained YZWR, but considering the wide ratio transmission gave the RMX a top speed north of 80 miles per hour, any increase in stability was a welcome addition. In terms of price, the RMX was a bit of a mixed bag in 1989. At $38.99, it set smack dab between the less expensive KTM and more costly YZ and ATK. Of the four, it was the only one that was EPA legal, and it was far better equipped than the Spartan Yamaha. Of course, if we were actually going to race it, there was a bit of work to be done, but the same could be said of the YZWR. Compared to doing your own MX to Enduro conversion, though, the RMX was still a great value. Buying a larger tank alone would have set you back, the $200 increase in price between an RM and an RMX, and you would still need to pop for lights, a heavier flywheel, skid plates, and suspension mods. Even after factoring in the cost of a carb top, power valve cover, and an aftermarket silencer, the bike was a solid value. And of course, it was easy to cork it right back up if you decided to do a little play riding after the racing day was over. Aside from the choked off state of the stock machine, the complaints about the RMX were very few in 1989. The tank was super slim for an enduro machine, and most everyone loved the bike's ergonomics. Tall guys did want a higher seat, but the RMX fit most riders very well. In spite of its nearly 250-pound weight, the bike felt light, and the front end was easy to get off the ground to get over logs and trail obstacles. The stock clutch pull was super light as well, and the plates held up well to abuse, but the lack of a two-piece clutch cover did seem like a glaring omission on a bike made for endurance races. The shift action was the smoothest in the class, but the detent was fairly light, so you had to be careful not to select two gears instead of one if you hit the shift or two aggressively. The O-ring chain and steel sprockets added weight, but they were far more durable than the junk found on the RM. In 1989, the new RM250 had issues with piston failures under hard use, but the RMX's two-ring unit proved more durable than the motocross version. Some people did mention issues with fork seal life, and the rear brake was prone to squeaking and overheating, but for the most part, the 89 RMX250 was a very dependable machine. In 1989, Suzuki jumped back into the Enduro game with an eminently versatile, but equally unfinished machine. In stock condition, the RMX was quiet, green sticker legal, and incapable of outpowering a KDX 200. With a little work, however, it was transformed into a national caliber off-road machine, capable of winning at any level. After years of ignoring the off-road market, Suzuki came to win in 1989, and the result was one of the most fun and fondly remembered machines of its era. So there you have it. That's the story of the 1989 Suzuki RMX 250. It's a machine I never actually owned. I've always wanted to get an RMX. I, I'd love to pick one up now. I imagine they're probably hard to come by these days. I did get to ride one. I rode a 1990 model. Uh, a friend of mine had one. It was completely stock. And I was, at the time, I was riding mostly motocross, in fact, pretty much exclusively motocross bikes. And 
I was struck by how damn slow it was. I was like, wow, this thing is really a turd. But I understand that, obviously, if you open it up, it became a much more legitimate performance machine. In stock condition, the bike was, you know, it was like KDX 200 slow, maybe even worse. So it was pretty shocking to ride. I was like, how's this thing a 250? But in any case, cool-looking motorcycle, uh, a really interesting machine from the 80s and 90s, a machine that I wish I wish would come back, you know, the 250 two-stroke is a great off-road machine, and thankfully Yamaha makes their 250X. And, of course, KTM has a full line of them. Suzuki, man, if they're struggling, they should bring some of these bikes back. I think they'd, they'd see a lot more sales with something like an RMX 250 than they do with the uh, the current uh, four-strokes that seem to be a little bit behind the times. At least at least there'd be a retro appeal to this machine. But in any case, if you like this sort of thing, check out many of the other ones I've done on the channel. If you could like, subscribe, share with your friends. If you'd like to support the channel, I have a bunch of Motocross Vault merch available. You can see the link is in the description below. If you want to support my friends, my buddy at uh, Brett Smith over at We Went Fast has some really cool merch as well. So in any case, until we meet again, this is Tony Blazer. Keep the rubber side down, and uh, peace. Peace.